1: Hello, tables are turned. Levi Dalton, host of the I'll Drink to That podcast. Welcome to the show. This is Abe Scherner interviewing you. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you here. Levi, this is the first question that I would like to ask you today. When I think not just about your podcast, but I think about your writing, which I admire very, very much, you write about very specific topics, paintings, wines, winemakers, people in the industry. Sometimes when you tell stories and reflect on people, paintings, wines, sometimes you name them and sometimes you don't. Can you tell us what's in your mind when you make a decision about whether to refer to somebody specifically or in a kind of general way?
0: I feel like people have their own lives. And if they signed up for publicity, then that's cool. Like, I feel like Leonardo da Vinci signed up to be a public name. But if it's a guy that I went to college with, I'm not sure if he signed up for that or not. And I try to judge it on that. Other times, people aren't necessarily real. They can be composites of different things. And when that happens, I usually do name them with a fictional name. There's definitely been times where that's not one
1: person. And what about wines? Are wines always like the real thing or sometimes are they fictional composites too? The wine has to be a real thing for me.
0: I don't fictionalize the wine. Anything else is fair game for...
1: Yeah, that seems crazy to me. So why, of all things, could a human being be fictionalized, but a bottle of wine gets to stand on its own?
0: I, I think we have such a hard time understanding how to describe wine anyway that if you throw in the, the fictional wine part, you know, if it's not a real thing, I, I don't know. To me, uh, there's a dialogue with it, and it, it's not helping me to, to make up the interrogator, like it's there's only one level where I want to play chess with myself.
1: But with human beings, it could be different. It's, and you drew a distinction between people who are public, is that right, and people who, are in some sense, are private. How do you sense that distinction?
0: Whether they signed up for it in a way or not. If I say to you, "Hey Abe, do you want to be on the show?" and you say yes, then you're signing up. Usually, people really want to sign up. But I think there's an honesty about what the show is. They kind
1: of know what they're they're doing. I also think you're really careful never to put anybody in a bad position. Am I being too-
0: Uh no, I've done that before. I just don't um You mean on the show or yeah, in the writing?
1: I, I mean I I mean both. I really do.
0: Uh I think that I have done that. I think that the way that this show is different than say sixty minutes is that we all really like wine. So, you know, there there used to be this show. By Roy Firestone It was like an interview show Where he, he uh, Interviewed athletes For ESPN I used to watch that a lot When I was a kid And I couldn't figure out Why For several months When I was doing this I kept thinking about Roy Firestone As opposed to Charlie Rose Or something like that And And I went back And I watched some Roy Firestone interviews And At the end of the Ted Williams interview He says You know Baseball is the greatest thing That ever happened to me Period not the wives. Not the kids. I mean, he talks about how great those are. Not the war. You know, Ted Williams was a guy who, like, uh, crash-landed, almost died during Korea. And so, he had a few stories to tell. But the thing that uh, really stuck with him or really changed him for the better, he felt, was baseball. And I think that's what uh, Roy Firestone has in common with Ted Williams is that they both like the game. And that's true here, too. It's It's not... There may be a distance between me and the person I'm interviewing. We may not know each other well. We may not um, always agree. But there's not a lot of distance between us and the topic. We both tend to like wine a lot.
1: I have a thought about the relationship between interviewing and what you just described is the game. You're going to have to forgive me because I need to develop the thought a little bit on the fly. And But the thought goes something like this. I thought the way you were going with what you were saying was the game wasn't wine. The game was talking. I have a sense almost from the beginning of these podcasts that what is central to you isn't wine. It's talking. Talking's become
0: easy for me. I mean, I think what a lot of people may not know about me is that I had um, to work through some speech disorder stuff when I was a kid. I used to stutter a lot. Sometimes you still hear it on the podcast. I used to have different problems with like S's and T's and pronunciation and uh, uh, combining different words together uh, like when to stop. And so I I went through what I thought was normal at the time, but it was actually extra instruction like special ed to just to talk normally when I was a little kid. And I would, you know, you would go and there would be one other kid there and you would sit with the teacher and read stories and she would emphasize that you should tell it like this. And so I, I became very conscious of how I would read things or talk about things. And I always wanted to be a better speaker. The Confidence was never the problem. Sometimes, just like anything, like uh, I've mentioned to you before, sports was never my thing. I could never make the physical body part do what I wanted it to do on the mental side. So, you know, I could go out and try to play football, but it just wasn't often working out well. Like, you
1: know. I'm flabbergasted because when I when I said that, that it's not wine that is central, but talking, I meant talking kind of in a metaphorical way. And it turns out that in a really not metaphorical, deeply physical way, talking has been important to you and something that you've been conscious of.
0: It's another way you present yourself like, you know, putting on a sweater. You know, I had some really important, uh, for me, English teachers, uh, Miss Casey and Miss Russell that were... Really influential in a lot of ways, and you know, one of the things Miss Russell had said, and this is my fifth grade English teacher, was that you know when you talk, you are being judged by other people, and so I at least took that to heart at one time. So yeah, it's it's how you do things does really matter, uh, as in all things, and I think that um, how I talk tends to change with the person, you yes, know? because it's a way that you relate to people, and that can be with. Tone or with pauses or any of that. It tends to vibe in. You know, the thing you learn when you're in a restaurant business is that you end up changing to make that person comfortable or happy. Like you end up changing how you're presenting yourself to kind of vibe with them. And, you know, everyone's got tables that they're stronger at getting along with or less strong, but you can't just be like, these are the people that I like. These are my people. This is who I would hang out with. So that's who's going to get good service and everybody else is going to feel kind of out in the cold. So, you know, you, I think it becomes second nature if you've been in the restaurant business for a long time to become a little bit changeable based on who you're talking to.
1: Do you think that the sommelier ever has any either responsibility or perhaps opportunity to change the person on the other side?
0: Yeah, I always wanted to do that. It's not so popular now. Like, that's very out of style, I'd, I'd say. Now what you hear a lot is that the sommelier's job is to be ultra respectful of where the guest wants to go. I, I always thought you were selling the guest short on that.
1: Give me an example of what it looks like when when you do do that, when well, you do guide the guest.
0: The idea is to bring them to th- through something they may not know that may really change how they look at what they do and don't know. That's what happened for me. So, if you know... That someone is drinking something, but they would find this other thing really interesting in their progression. It gets to be a point where, just like you can predict the end of a movie, you can predict where someone's at in their curve with wine. And if you know that you have the next step for them, the next card to play that would help them see the next thing, and you don't give it to them or don't encourage them in that direction, I'm not saying force. But if you don't encourage them in that direction, you're really selling them short. You're really doing them a disservice. You're not helping them as people. It's just like if I saw that you were holding the bat wrong and we were trying to hit a ball out of the park and I didn't say to you, you know, actually, if you choked up on that for your size and the size of that bat, it would
1: help you out a lot. It's very similar. So the sommelier at best is somehow like a coach?
0: That's how it used to be. I don't think that that's much true anymore. What you see now is a sommelier
1: more as a cheerleader, like someone who's very excited and you're supposed to vibe on that excitement. You mean the sommelier is excited about the choice that you just made or the fact that you're simply in the restaurant or what?
0: Sommiers, I think, ideally talk about themselves today as being very excited about wine and
1: conveying that along. Like You mean they just show up and they kind of, they bathe you in excitement. It flows out of them. The difference between how it used to be and how it is today, I'm talking about the late 90s and today,
0: is that it used to be like, hey, Mr. Sommelier, what do you think about these two wines, the 95 and the 96 of this? And he would say to you, for me... I think the 95 is drinking a lot better. And then you would say, okay, well, let's have the 95. Today, I feel like if you ask that question, they'll say, I don't know. Let's try them both and see what happens. I'd love to find out. And then the guest goes, great. That's awesome. Actually, they don't say it like that. They say, I really don't know. Let's try them and find out. Like that kind of way. Like excited. And wouldn't it be cool to know? And, uh, then the guest was like, okay, well bring me both and bring me the glasses and we'll, we'll try it together. Like that's the vibe. That's the ideal vibe.
1: To me, they both sound like different forms of teaching. I mean, it's clear that the second one, the, the, the present day model, that's nothing like coaching, but it does sound like a form of learning together.
0: Yeah. I'm not actually selling it short. I'm yeah. just saying that's not necessarily me where I, uh, do take uh, a little bit of surprise at how popular it is to say Is the thing where people say, well, if someone wants to have some wine and they don't know what they want, I'll just pour them six different glasses of something. They'll tell me which one they like and I'll get them that. That almost feels like your job is to uh, move things around the room as opposed to having any input on being knowledgeable about something and sharing
1: that. But it's not just about knowledge. And from the beginning, what you have spoken about is a kind of listening. I mean, I think of you. I think of you. Both as an interviewer, but also as a sommelier, as analogous to a therapist.
0: You know, my mom was a therapist. She used to have people to the house to do the sessions. And so it's it's not that different than having people to my house to do the podcast, you know, and listening to them for a length of time. She was a psychology, you know, she had a master's and she did a bunch of practicum and she had a practice out of the house. So there is that. I think that the difference between me and my mom is that I always was into making a spectacle. Like I was always into having a party or doing an event or, you know, when I was a kid, we were very poor. And I heard about this thing where there was like a circus or carnival in town and I really wanted to go. And my mom said we couldn't go because we didn't have any money, which was true. And uh, so what I I did at that time, uh, I think this was like, it would have been before second grade, was I threw my own carnival and I invited people to come and you know we had like a ring toss and we had like drive the car like push car kind of thing through the maze and you know we i had one of my mom's friends dress up as a fortune teller and look into a crystal ball and tell read fortunes and that kind of thing and then kids came and we sold tickets and
1: wait uh, what was your role in this how did you appear
0: um, I organized that event. Like but were that you was like, my you
1: know what I'm saying? Were you thing? the Wizard of Oz?
0: Well, no. I I was just kind of, I was I I think for a long time, I kind of saw myself as like this Ian Schrager guy, like uh, without knowing who that was at the time, but like this guy that was kind of behind the scenes adjusting the lights and yeah. stuff. Um, so I was really into that. I got really into nightclubs for a long time later on, much later in my life in terms of doing events, having special things, having people come. That was always a thing for me. I was real close
1: with a lot of club promoters for a while, which is not something that comes up in my life now. But Having it, people know. come but not being at the center. Having a three-ring circus but not being the guy in the top hat.
0: Yeah, I was never Steve Rubell. I was always you know, kind of more of an Ian kind of guy.
1: Uh, and so it's not surprising at all that the role that you take on the radio is the interviewer, not the interviewee. You, you, know, you know what I'm it, saying? It, it, the show is not about you. You know, I have to credit Matt. My producer, uh, who doesn't work on the show anymore,
0: just because he got super busy with other stuff, and he has you know, like he just didn't have the time to do it anymore. He's really successful now, but early on, he was like, you know, everyone knows that you're smart, or should know that you're a smart person, and you really don't need to prove that every show. So that was very important that he said that at that time.
1: And but I, it's really interesting because when you talk about psalming, it's been clear from the beginning of our discussion that there are parallels between the work that you've done as a sommelier and the work that you do now as the host of this podcast. And my view is in both of those ways you disappear, you don't put yourself at the forefront. There are sommeliers who, for whom the show is always about them and the happy guest gets to be the spectator of the show. Does that sound right to you? It's Surprising
0: the amount of people that are actually uh, really, maybe the people you would think of for that categorization, who actually are really good at sort of making people feel listened to, even though they're being talked at, mm. or they are really good at making people feel like they someone agrees with them. But then they kind of take center stage on the attention, so it's it's not you know the perception and reality not always the same thing. Because I've seen it, I've seen. Some people were very good at that. And I I, I can only envy them, but that's never been my thing. I think I was always this really tall six foot five guy who stuck out. I was always this guy who, even if he was trying to hide, usually got called on in class. Or if I acted one way, people would notice right away. Or I was never in the crowd, I don't think. I, I kind of wanted to be, I think, a lot of times. I usually got attention. A lot of people you know, that I grew up with or whatever were maybe smarter or more athletic or somehow, but I would usually be noticed. I it's hard it's hard not to be noticed when you're six foot five.
1: Let me think more about your writing, less about your work as a sommelier and your work as the host of the show. When I think about your writing, the writing for me is it's spectacular. It's um it's brilliant, not intellectually brilliant, but it's brilliant the way the stones are brilliant, something like that. And because of the way in which it's spectacular, it doesn't disappear. Like, I notice your writing. I think of you as a writer. Nonetheless, you don't write about yourself. I mean, you are amazing at writing about other people and other things.
0: I mean, there there have been times where I wrote about myself and people didn't read that. So, like, <laughs> like maybe yeah. I, you know, I wrote about this thing I was in the hospital, and if I can get five people to read about that, that I didn't one, read that. You know, yeah, that no, one it, that no one ever reads that. that's not one that's referred to. No, but, you know, the ones that tend to get more plays, like I went to Bartolo Mascarella. Yeah, totally, Maria Teresa. That that kind right. of
1: thing. But not so. just when you write about wineries. I mean, I remember specifically about works of art and about buildings.
0: That, there's been different stages. I mean. I don't know, it's it's kind of strange to talk about because I actually don't think a lot of people read it. Like I when you look at actually the numbers of who follows that versus who follows the podcast, it's there's a big difference. Like a lot more people listen to the podcast than read my blog, I think. But there was different stages. There was a whole period of time, and I think I was very influenced by Brooklyn guy, where I wanted to draw a moral. Like I wanted to draw a life lesson out of it. And he's very good at doing that. He's very good at showing you directions on how to have a good time like in terms of enjoy and experience better. And he's very good at drawing a life lesson out of something. And it's almost like Aesop's Fables or something. Absolutely. And I uh, went through that for a long time where yeah. I was trying to draw like a, what I would call a moral and, and not the moral, immoral sense, but moral like how to live life sense or thinking about life. Absolutely. Um, a moral lesson. And, and you feel
1: like you've so, pulled back from that now?
0: Yeah, I usually try to let people talk more and tell who they are. Like, I do a lot of interviews now, stuff like that. If you're going to give a good interview, it turns out you have to be a good listener. That's for me. I don't know. Other people might do different things. But I found the more I was making people feel comfortable talking, the better interview. The ones I was happy with were coming out more.
1: Levy, I want to ask you a question that I have wanted to ask every wine professional that I have ever known from the first time they ever met a wine professional. What is up with all these trips to Italy? Who pays for them? That's my first question. I've actually paid a lot to go to Italy.
0: First time I went, I went on a Grazia tour, which was really helpful for where I was in my evolution because I was drinking a lot of California Cabernet and Merlot and going with De Grazia and Drinking those Producers was a really good gateway for me and that was 04 and we were trying the 2000s in bottle which had just been rated a perfect vintage by the critics by a critic in particular and the 2001s in barrel and it was really important for me to see
1: that I liked the 2001s more. Why was it important for De Grazia to have you there? I was a big buyer in Florida at that time. But you weren't buying his wines or were you? I did end up when I when I got back.
0: I bought some of his wines. It was really more about the distributor. Florida's different. It's not like there's 130 distributors like New York. So if you're doing a lot of business with the distributor, they carry Lynch, they carry De Grazia, they can, You know, if you're doing one hand feeds the other in that way. But that was also a long time ago. It was a different era.
1: So to me, it seems like natural and a good thing. You don't really know much about Piemonte. Mark De Grazia takes you over there. You discover a whole bunch of amazing things. You come back. You buy his wines. I did do that. Yeah.
0: And then I sold a bunch of his wines when I went to Danielle because John Luke had uh, bought a lot of Degrazia and I, you know, I sold a fair amount of Sandroni at a French restaurant.
1: And I know that that's the aim on their part. I mean, no matter how important education is to all of us, Mark De Grazia didn't bring you over there for education in some kind of pure sense of the word.
0: Uh, I don't know. He was good at it, though. Oh, that's I, really interesting. Uh, a lot of he gets sold short a lot. Yeah. Now. Uh, one, Yano, his brother is awesome. I would love to spend any amount of time with him. He's great. I don't. I always agree with his things he says about particular wines. I agree with the person one hundred percent. Like I, I would love to hang out with Yano anytime. And I, I've learned about, as I have from you, the way that Yano appreciates and kind of moves through life has been something I have noted and remembered. And you know, I don't, I don't know, inspired is the right word, but he was a cool cat. He is a cool cat. Um, he really blended that. I want to do American business, but I want to live Italian lifestyle. And I really like that. I really like Italy. So that was a cool thing for me to see. Marco, uh, was more, it was, it was much more difficult for me to bond with him. We never have years later and I'm really sure he doesn't know who I am anymore, but I did learn some things from him and he's really sold short, I think on who he is as a person.
1: Why is that? How did that happen?
0: Well, so, you know, we were going to producers of his and he would give us a rundown in the bus that was like, An incredible way to think about your own producers like he would say to you okay we're on our way to this producer this is the most successful producer in my entire book this is the producer that we sell the most of this is the producer that most of you are going to buy from me this is a producer that has not achieved mastery because they're trying to work too much on control this is oh four people weren't saying things like that back then he was really using that like difference between young Rembrandt, old Rembrandt kind of thing. You know, the brush strokes are much freer when you get older. You let things happen. You're you're okay with that kind of freedom. He was saying that back then and he was saying how he was going to ferment Norella Mascalese in Sicily in cement back then in 04. You know, and he was talking about how cement was a much better fermenting vessel than barrel uh, and he wanted to go to volcanic soil to explore high elevation. I mean yeah, uh, I don't buy a lot of De Grazia wine today. Um, that was a very important trip for me. It was very important for me to see Piemonte. It, it was a gateway for me in a lot of ways, like palette wise, philosophical wise. That was my first trip to Italy. Um, a lot, a lot moved. I, I knew what I wanted. I think after that, I didn't always pursue it at any given moment, but I knew what I wanted.
1: So, the trip was deeply educational for you, not just, it didn't just achieve some commercial end.
0: I mean, I think it did both. Yeah. I, you know, I definitely bought Pura when I came back and stuff. So, this
1: is what I'm wondering. I wasn't, I wasn't like trying to push you into a corner about commerce versus education. In fact, just the opposite. I've wondered about something that is really part of our industry, namely the role of the wine educator. I can't think of another industry that places such a high commercial importance on education. That's something I've often wondered about. Why is education so central to selling wine?
0: I think it's the big consumer product that has to be explained to people. Like you walk into the microwave place and you're like, okay, that one's got five features. That one's got 10. I don't know. I like the look of that one. That one seems to move faster. Let's buy that one. That works across all kinds of stuff that you buy. You know, I I go in and look at suits. I'm like, I don't know. I like the design of that one. Seems to fit me better. I'll buy that. You know, or these shoes are leather. I don't know. I like how they feel. Let's do that. Wine, you really, historically in America, I feel like we've needed a translator for this experience. Almost like we've needed a guide or, you know, you could get mystical and be like, we've needed a shaman or somebody to bring it into terms that were more comprehensible to us. Like imagine in the old days. You have a disease and you need to come to grips with that somehow. And the guy tells you, well, you need to be closer to the buffalo spirit or such. You know, not that I know what I'm talking about right now. But that would help you do this. At least then it becomes comprehensible to you what you need to do. That changes your whole attitude. Like you have some control over this situation. Um, I mean, wine can be the same way. Oh, well, you need to triple decant that. Even if it's wrong, someone's saying you needed to do it, that was very helpful. I think now... I, I would also say I think there's been a long period of time where the the snobbishness uh, that's ascribed to wine, which I think you have a hard time finding in wine now, but it's easy to find amongst bartenders, for instance. I think that has to do with the divide between the customer knowledge and and the professional knowledge. And the reason that you see so much less snobbishness is that you see so much less frustration amongst the professionals because the customer knowledge is so much higher now that there's there's less of a leap that you have to make to bound that gap and you have so many more people coming in that you can really vibe off of who are really smart really cool really interested in wine it's a whole different thing now the that whole thing that was summed up as some kind of um chasm of uh, of snobbishness is really i think mostly gone you really have to search it out for wine whereas it's easy to find in
1: other areas that are But what you know what? Sometimes people point to to is a kind of either counter-snobbishness or what you might call hipster snobbishness. You know what I mean? Like, if you don't drink sherry, you don't drink wine from the Jura, you're not cool.
0: Yeah. I mean, I usually think that the people who are really quick to point that out are the people who have benefited off the previous generation's interests and tastes. You know, usually it's the publication that did really great and off the 90s cab phenomenon that's like, well, these people aren't so great or... You know, it's people who did great during the scores era of Parker who no one complained about Super Tuscans back then. No one was like, Oh, this is terrible that they're over-oaking things. No one no one was complaining. Now it's like, oh well, you don't want to over-oak things, that's wrong. You know, I mean I you know, people will like say that natural wine is like a new Parkerization sometimes. I hear that. It's really interesting to me. And I, th- I think a lot of it has comes down to money. So I you mean, really there's some very vested financial interests on one side and not the other.
1: But it sounds like what you're saying, which is of really fundamental interest to me, is that everything is new right now. It's not just that the players have changed or it's different. You're shaking your head. So tell me more about this, how everything really is new right now.
0: I mean, I didn't know that that could happen.
1: I didn't know that could happen uh, either. It, when
0: I was starting. Uh, but when you see it happen, when you see a, a taste go 180 degrees... It used to be a guerrilla war, right? You used to go in and used to really root for the underdog team, but you never thought they were going to win. And then they started to win games. Who knew? Like, the you know, Cinderella story started to happen. Like, people started to get interested about these wines that you always harbored love for, and you tried to get in people, but you knew you were lacing up to lose. You, you knew you were going to get a few things, but people were going to reject your Sherry, your Lambrusco, your Amaro, your... Orange wine. They were eventually. It was never going to be a winning fight, and I was cool with that. I was, you know, one of the things when I used to watch a football game with my dad, he said, "You what? You root for the underdog. It's lame to root for the team that you know is going to win. Where's the fun in that?" And I, I think if anything, what I really do is, it's not that I talk. It's not that I know about wine. It's not that I educate. What I really do is root for the underdog, and I do that my whole everything. Everything, the the whole thing is that. So. You know, I think the difference between me and other people is that that I uh, that sometimes gives me pause is that I don't I don't associate whether I want to root for the underdog with whether it's trendy or not. Those are different things. It, it needs to succeed on a bigger level than that. And if it if it becomes trendy, I don't hold that against it. I think people do that sometimes. Yeah, totally. For um,
1: instance, sherry and wines from the Jura.
0: There's really big divides in the market now, and there didn't used to be. I think there fundamentally used to be one market. Like, you were into wine, you were into this kind of wine. And now you see different markets. And when people go downtown and try to sell Bordeaux and they find out that people want Jura wine, suddenly they're more cool with Jura wine. You know, there's more of them on the list and they're more okay with that. You know, I think a lot of it has to do with market. I think that the reason the West Coast doesn't seem to like natural wine is because... There's a couple reasons. One is there's a whole California wine industry out there that's not really embracing it. And the other is that a lot of that wine has to go through the Panama Canal and it doesn't taste the same over there. It's warmer when it goes through that place. And that's not helpful for these kind of wines. And they're actually really tasting something different and it's not working for them. It's not working for them. That's why you see so much criticism of it from places that the distribution channels are different than New York. I, I really fundamentally believe that. I, I, I think there's a real different understanding of a wine like Radicon in Italy, in New York, and in Colorado or California where distribution is different. Of how the distribution chain of how it got there. I don't, I don't think it's people are wrong. I, I think what they're tasting is different.
1: Levy, I want to ask you about movies. Sometimes I worry that when you have a discussion, three or four people at dinner or at a party, when you have one of those discussions, like what are your favorite movies, that it can become as bad as talking about your dreams because it can be really hard for people to share what, what they saw in a movie. But I'm still going to ask you like a dinner party question. Tell me about some of your favorite movies. I think a lot of the movies that I liked originally, thinking back, were
0: about me trying to understand people And also women in particular. So I used to watch a lot of new wave film uh, from the 60s. You know, things like Eric Rahmer. And I I wonder, like, why was I so drawn to that? Why am I drawn to that? Give us the
1: name of an Eric Rahmer movie so we know what you're you're talking about.
0: The English translation would be like My Night at Mods or... Isn't there some girl on the beach? You know what I mean? Yeah, Pauline Plog. Yeah. Pauline at the Mm -hmm. beach or there's... The collector girl, Mm -hmm. collector noose. You know, a lot of it has to do with uh, a guy's engagement or disengagement or misunderstanding of or being understood by a female. And I wasn't good at that for years, maybe still not. And so watching it on a screen of, you know, watching a dude that was like awkward and or overly trying to controlling or something like that was a way of Trying to figure out a lot of stuff that my parents hadn't shown or talked to me about. Because, you know, I didn't have a strong, uh, there wasn't a strong marriage between my parents. Right, didn't I you didn't.
1: say your father was not around so much?
0: Yeah, I mean, they divorced early and, you know, I would be with one and or the other, but I wouldn't be with both. Hmm. And there weren't a lot of strong, like, relationship role models. I was, I didn't have an older brother. I don't know. This goes, I mean, it's kind of sappy, I guess. But I think a lot of it was that I wanted to stare at people. I stare at things. I stare at people. And, or at least I did till in New York when I feel like that gets you killed here. But, um, I really try to figure people out. I like, look at them, you know, we can talk about me speaking, but I was, uh, visual memory was a big thing for me. So I would kind of just kind of stare at things theaters are made for that. I mean, what I had to find out after a long time is that the cinematic thing with girls is not really true. A lot of times.
1: What do you mean? It's not true.
0: A lot of what you learn from a movie is not real. Like in terms of interacting with people. And it it really actually is often not true at all.
1: It's so interesting. You weren't turning to these movies for entertainment. You were turning to these movies for instruction in the real world. I didn't
0: know this at the time. Yeah. I just think that now looking back. Mm -hmm. uh, I just knew that there was something going on there. And that I was into. Because I used to watch a lot of films. Like a ridiculous amount of films. So, I mean, why is that? You know, you think about what. You did, whether that was anything, you know, a few years
1: ago. Why was I so into that sports team? Why did I Why, would, why did I like those pair of pants? You know, was that hip then? Or Did it, somebody ever say to you, John Ford, he's a really amazing director, you need to watch John Ford movies? Goddard said that to me
0: in his writing, you know, that was the thing. So it's, did you watch him? Did I watch John Ford movies? Yeah. Sometimes. Um, you know, the French were big uh, American appreciators of certain, uh, the auteur theory, you know, Ford was one of them.
1: Um, I'm asking Hawks. because it sounds like watching movies of relationships, interactions between people was really important to you. Sometimes people say about Romer movies that all he did was shoot conversations. It wasn't just the movies. It was
0: also restaurants were important for me to do that. I needed to do repetitive social interactions to figure out what worked because I didn't know. I was really
1: not a – I was
0: never a popular guy.
1: You mean that working in restaurants was a form of instruction for you? Yeah. Not and it, hanging it, it, out in restaurants, them. but working.
0: Working them. Because you have uh, the same interaction with people over and over again. Like, what kind of water would you like? Did you want to start with cocktails? And so ways of approaching that interaction dramatically change based on them and you. And and you actually get a grade at the end, which was very helpful to me. It was like, oh, it didn't work for them. They left me a $5 tip. Or it did and that's $100. And that was very... I needed that. And I needed to see what normal people look like. My, my parents would go into very emotional, different levels. Like I needed to know how normal people interacted, which was often just much more calm.
1: What an, what an amazing thought that in order to learn about that, you go to a restaurant and work. You don't go to a cafe and watch people. You go to a restaurant and work.
0: I did both of those things. Yeah. I used to hang out at a lot, coffee shops a lot. I used to hang out at nightclubs a lot where people can't see that you're looking at them because it's dark. I mean, you know, I don't want to say like creepy style. No, no,
1: no, I know. But and
0: um, I, I mean, watching people has been a big thing for me.
1: It's just, it's so interesting because the camera watches. So the, you as a watcher, you in a nightclub watching, you in a cafe watching, you as a spectator in a movie theater who has a, a particularly strong connection to the movie itself and to the movie camera, all of that is one thing. It's so amazing to me that that is paired in the same human being at the same time in his life with service. They're so different.
0: You know, I was not good with free time. A lot of things would go wrong. Like I, you know, I needed some direction. Uh, I needed to be kept busy in a way for a long time. I, I also had a uh, sleeping problems. Like I couldn't go to sleep unless I was exhausted and, um, uh, you know. The restaurant industry really provided all that restaurant industry will really keep you busy all the time. And for long hours, if, if, if you want that, it's got that. So it, you know, it, it worked out. Plus it just seemed like I was in the coolest place in town. A lot of times, you know, Lenny Bruce said yes. that, you know, he could, in one of his last comic sketches, he said that he could see why people went to Catholic church. Cause if you live in this rat hole and you go to a Catholic church and it's this really great Gothic cathedral, I mean, isn't that great? Wouldn't you love this experience? I lived in rat holes. I, you know, it was really great for me. We never went out. We never went out. I mean, I saw a movie in the theater with my parents, like maybe three times, We you know, we didn't go to restaurants. We ate at home and it was very exotic for me to go and be in these places it was it was great i just was very curious about it what happens back here what do you guys do back there what is you know what's it like behind here how does this happen i, I think where i've been criticized in my career it's usually for taking something that's uh professional too personal it was always personal for me the whole the whole restaurant thing and was it's always, still always it's still i think so i i think so i th- i think where it's been the other emphasis i just haven't you know, it hasn't felt right. So,
1: I'm thinking about um, the early days of levy and service, not levy as a star sommelier. To what degree is seduction important? I don't know, but I used to think about it a lot. That's what, I mean, I got that sense, so tell uh, us.
0: I mean, I used to think about the, you know, Kierkegaard, like the Diary of A and the Diary of a Seducer, you know, that kind of thing. And I think I used to think about it a lot because I was so bad at any of that. You know, I knew guys who, uh, and this is true of the new wave too. There was like the French cinema directors. There was this guy who collaborated with Chabral. His name was Paul Gagot. And he's the inspiration for a lot of that, a lot of uh, Chabral scripts, but also Romer scripts. Romer says it quite plainly in some interviews. And he's clearly the inspiration for the Belmondo character in Breathless. And this guy was just great at getting chicks, And they just went for him, even though he was obviously a bad boy. And he ended up, you know, he ended up not working out for him. But for a long time, it did work out for him. And I was always fascinated by guys like that because that never happened to me. I, you know, I had pimples and I was really awkward and I, um, you know, I could answer questions in class or I could say interesting things. But when it came to gym or PE or any of that stuff, I mean, I was the guy who was terrified to do any of that stuff. And. Girls knew it, and terror is the last thing that girls want to hang out with. That's
1: not what they ever want to be around. So You studied him, but he didn't become a model for you.
0: I don't think he became a model for anybody. Don't, Bre- Breathless, okay, maybe... Breathless is a critique of that guy. It's Godard saying, uh, don't you see how this guy is screwed up? And Godard says it in the way that he says it, which is that you know west western culture screwed him up he's you know this guy watched too many movies and he he believes the fiction of movies he believes the bogart myth which is if i act like a gangster girls will like me more and it turns out that by doing that he uh pushes away the one person that really does like him already and he really screws it up and that's what breathless is about and i've seen it enough times
1: to know that i just know that that sounds and- almost too moral to me i mean there's 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 something about the way that you've just presented it that really makes me hesitate as if what Breathless Was was a deconstruction of something that has, a, you know, a moral that you can cash out.
0: What about the later films of Godard would make you think that the first one wasn't a moral one? Like, I mean, they're all diatribes, you
1: know? Okay, is it possible for a wine to have the same standpoint, the same thrust? What I mean, is it possible for a wine to be a diatribe? A movie's a diatribe, that's something we can grant, we can imagine. Can a wine do that?
0: I mean, now that you say it, I guess the answer is, yeah, I never thought about it that way, but there's, it seems to be. It also seems to be more like people seek out ones that are counterexamples, but I mean. Give us an example. Cornelison, it's obvious that, you know, you could say he's searching for something different, but it's pretty obvious that
1: he's manning the ramparts against something, too, by the decisions he makes, so. I think that in general, in our profession, we tend to have a high degree of admiration, maybe affection even more than admiration, for people who show lower degrees of self-awareness, as if innocence is one of the things that we prize. I think
0: it's there's a lot of people who are pretending to be a lot more innocent. I'm not even talking about Frank anymore than they actually are. I mean, I, it seems to not be cool anymore to uh, try to be smart. You know, there, I think there used to be a style of writing... Where people tried to explain long form and show that they were smart. You know, it's a kind of uh, writing. And you almost never see it anymore. And I, in a way, uh, kind of channeled that change, I think. Or tried to engage it in some way when I wrote a piece uh, that was about natural wine, ostensibly. But it was about reading old letters on a shed. And I was really going back to that actually happened to me. And that was a childlike gaze. So I was going back to a childhood memory to pull that out. For me there was a certain innocence. If you read that piece there's a lot of there's a lot of non-eloquence, there's a lot of coinages that aren't words, there's the way a child would talk and that's you know how I engage with that. I I, I think it's an it's very Rousseau,
1: it's very new noble, it's very primitive as
0: in so
1: relate that for my sake to winemaking. Is there winemaking that's like that? That's childlike, that's primitive.
0: I mean, I, I mean, I can think of some examples, Please, but I, I think people would take it the wrong way if I said their names. Uh, like I don't, I'm,
1: uh, it's interesting. We're back to the first question that I asked you.
0: Yeah. I mean, I want to understand more than prescribe, you know, like, uh, I think I, okay. So I have the thing about, I want to bring people along. With wine, But I want to do it at the pace that's going to engage them and not turn them off. And I'm not saying that... I've been wrong so many times. Like so many times. And I think it's a real key thing to know about yourself that you can be very wrong in your understanding of a wine. Uh, Give
1: us an example. I don't care what the particular wine is. Let me know what it means for you to be wrong about a wine.
0: Just in general, being wrong is a huge thing for me. And I've only recently... Maybe not come to grips with it, you know? It was, I, you know, it's like being called out for being the awkward
1: kid, or it was a big deal to be wrong. But But still, give me, I still don't know what it means to be wrong. You mean you misidentify it, or you thought that they used SO2, but in fact, they didn't? Uh, I didn't do stuff like that. I mean, people didn't talk like that way in the 90s, Uh you know what I mean? Nobody talked about SO2 until fairly recently.
0: I would do things like, you know... This is not good or this is – I mean, okay, so some of my favorite producers today, my very favorite producers, Giuseppe Mascarello and Barlow Mascarello, these are both wines that I denounced the first time that I had them, right? These are both producers where I said, this is hype. I don't get this. This is stupid in both cases. Now, I will tell you that the greatest wines I've ever had were from those producers.
1: So, Can you Uh, you recall what it was that you tasted or that was absent from those wines that caused you to say that about them? Well, savory, you know, there was a whole
0: generation that wasn't given savory wines. And
1: And so when you first ran into a savory wine.
0: Yeah, that needed some real time to figure itself out. And I didn't understand. Or that played with oxidation. You know, there was a lot of reductive red wine making in California when I was coming up. And people don't understand this so much anymore. But like... This is what you drank, you know? You drank a small amount of white burgundy. You drank uh, some degree of Bordeaux and, you you know, actually a fair amount. And then you drank a lot of California Cab Merlot, Sauvignon Blanc, and Chardonnay. And the differences between one and another were thought to be like you could base your career on that. Like, in the, I mean, it seems silly to say that now, but, you know.
1: No, dip- I still live in that world. I'm, or even if that world isn't the present, it is not the distant past. It's the immediate past. I guess, but there's a whole generation out here that doesn't know anything about that. So when I,
0: they just don't, you know. If I were love to it. Play, so it require
1: it would require time travel for
0: me to say. You know, it used to really matter the difference between the '96 and the '97 Matanzas Creek Merlot. That was your part of big part of your job. Like, I don't think people would vibe on that. Like they would, you know. That just makes me sound like an old man. And I think there's a lot of oh, ageism involved in this. Like you're. I've been dismissed by both sides of the age group. So like I think there's, there's a lot of age bias on, the, on these kinds of things.
1: I'm going to say something uh, that will lead to a question. It's just an observation that I've made. I'm much older than you, but I haven't been in the business longer than you because I had this whole other life that went for four decades before I was involved in the wine business at all. I came in at the transition between wine buyers being 50-year-old men and suddenly being 26-year-old women. Yeah. It's and a it, huge change. It's unbelievable. And it went from black to white. It was like a glacier. Well, it, it didn't because there ah. are no black people. And ah. if
0: it ever did that, that would be really interesting. That would be amazing if there were black people or Hispanic people.
1: Right. Because there's not. No.
0: And we we should remember that. This yeah, is yeah, still yeah. A, no. This is a, a white guy thing to do, this wine thing. and. You know
1: Carla's not a sufficient counterexample. Pascaline You mean No, I'm so sorry. As a black you, said a whi- no, you
0: said white guy. I'm moving oh, okay. through the steps. It's, I I think it's a white person thing to do. Yeah. I mean, so certainly there are, are there's plenty of different uh gender and sexuality preferences in the wine business that is very successful and different nationalities. There's not a lot of black people.
1: Why is that?
0: I mean, I, I could come up with a lot of different reasons. I'm I'm not going to because I think it's like going to very is it a much third rail? it's very much going to move into a, a region where i don't know what i'm talking yeah, about yeah yeah and i'm going to open myself up to yeah. all kinds of criticism that i don't i don't yeah. i don't know
1: why i mean yeah. i have
0: some ideas and they're just i'm not in touch with these
1: i haven't researched it i don't know you know it and is amazing though yeah. And so the reason why I had to ask about Carla and Pascaline is because in many industries doors are not open for women. It's interesting the degree to which you know what's not
0: open in the sommelier world is jobs for old guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's no, no there's question. no jobs for old guys. And when I see conferences for women empowerment and wine, I think that's fine. But yeah. where's the empowerment for dudes that are 45? I very, mean, very interesting. Or anyone that's 45. Women that are 45.
1: You know that a very important part of my job is selling my own wine. I am shocked when I have to present my wine to anybody who's remotely close in age to me. We gave up up on the idea
0: that you could grow into this business. We gave up as a culture the idea that you could grow old into this. Like it used to be that you can go to Danielle and still see this. You can see guys who used to be busboys who are now maitre d's. And they're sixty. And they still work the floor. And they have knowledge to share. Or you can go to Japan and see this. You can go to a culture where they value the wisdom of old people. And we value, right now, it seems like the ideal is to have Justin Bieber on the floor. And for good or for ill, that's what we've chosen to do as a society. That's the restaurant we go to. Is the one with the youth. Because... Maybe because we're shown ads of youth, maybe because youth drive sales, maybe that's who's got disposable income, that's maybe who's going to restaurants as younger people, or maybe it's older people who want to feel younger. But we gave up on the idea that you could be a waiter and make that a career, just like we gave up on a ton of blue-collar jobs as something that was going to be a career for someone's life. We gave up on that. And we, you know, when you talk about different societies, you talk about certain wines being popular, why is Bordeaux not popular? Well, there's a few reasons. One of them is that there's no middle class. If there were middle class, they would like Bordeaux. Bordeaux is a middle class wine. I mean, even with the pricing now, there's still plenty of wines that the middle class would buy. They don't, people don't buy Bordeaux because it is, there is no middle class anymore. There's one or the other. There's natural wine or there's Burgundy you know, for a lot of money. So you tell me. Yeah, where, where are the blue-collar jobs? Well, sommelier could have been one of them. And we it developed, and there was that, and then we decided we weren't interested in that as a In culture. the same
1: way that Chef was a blue-collar job at some point.
0: Yeah, and, and a, maybe celebrity is a young person's game, and maybe both of these things have been celebrity-driven. I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a lot of reasons why. But Does this mean that you worry about your future? Um, I worry more about my wife's future. Uh, I, I think I'm the sort of person that hasn't really cared about himself or his welfare that much very often. it's It was very important for me to say what I thought was true in the face of where I didn't feel like that was being represented. If I felt like it was true, it's always been important for me to say that. I think both parents were like that, to their own detriment probably. You know, it's not always what people want to hear. It's not always what people agree with. It's not always what I agree with later. But I felt like if it if it were true and it weren't being represented or it was being ignored, or then it, it, was an, it was, you had to do something about that. It's also more of a California thing to do that. Wait right. to do what? Yeah. Okay. So maybe it's more of a California thing in my life because, you know, my parents were both a little bit radical in different stages of their life. My dad used to teach history in Cesar Chavez's compound with, you know, armed guys and barbed wire because people were out to kill Cesar Chavez. And he used to go in and teach the school children history classes my mom was very much about mlk and very much about the labor movement and that's who we hung out with one or you know those that was the set um dad went in the 80s like everybody he went much more kind of rush limbaugh style but uh he went from caesar chavez yeah everyone did though that's what the 80s was you know i mean so did the popular culture i mean look at look at a movie like the big chill it's basically talking about that you know It's, these guys got older and they decided they wanted yuppie things. Yeah, yeah. You know
1: what I mean? And it's interesting because they didn't get much older. You're not talking about something that took 20 years. You're talking about something that took seven years, maybe.
0: You know, I think sometimes people are embarrassed by their own history. I think this, the 60s, 70s generation was sometimes embarrassed by their own history. And that's almost
1: never commented on by those people. But I think there was some level of that.
0: I mean, I just watched it with my dad. I can't tell you.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You think historically all the time, and I don't mean that you think about the Romans. What's interesting is you can think about a three year period in terms of its history. Well, it's
0: helpful for the wine business. <laughs> Say yeah. more. I mean, it's, it, you know, things come out of things. And uh, originally intended the podcast show to, to have a lot more of that. And what I found is that I was surprised that guests didn't want to engage on that level. So I would ask a question about trends or change or history, and for whatever reason, either because they, Never thought about it, or they weren't around for it, or um, it's not what's popular, or it's not where the money is. They didn't; those weren't the kind of questions that they felt comfortable answering. So I, I I stopped doing that essentially.
1: I, I feel like I can imagine a couple reasons why many of your guests resisted that. I think that both on the winemaking side and also on whatever you want to call it, the wine buying and the sommelier side. Both of those, on the one hand, are tied to a notion that everything we do is classical and kind of permanent, or it's trendy and we don't want to be involved in it. I think that's one reason that people don't like talking about history, because they want to pretend that nothing changes. We've been making wine the same way for 2,000 years, except for those guys we don't like.
0: Maybe. All I can say is I didn't know what was coming, but when everything changed, and I think everything changed, what that really gave me was a sense that anything could change.
1: But you haven't always on. had that sense. You mean no. you've learned that recently? Yeah,
0: I used to be. Uh, I I was really inspired by this lady named Kat. She was at Number Nine Park. She still is today. She was Barbara Lynch's wine director, and she waged a war of guerrilla warfare to serve the wines that she wanted to serve. She also did a lot of education. So I only saw one part of it because I never worked with her. I mean, she did a, pho- a phenomenal amount of education, and I didn't really realize that till later. That makes things work. However, she also didn't return phone calls from people she didn't want to see. And she wasn't around for things. And she, she was passive-aggressive. She was a passive-aggressive wine buyer. And I learned how to do that to move the brands that I wanted to move, which I didn't think of as brands. I thought of as causes, you know. I wanted to see Sherry go. So I put it at the top of my wine-by-the-glass menu. I wanted to see people find out about these wines. And I tried to do what I could do to do them. And a lot of that meant removing more obvious things from the list so they didn't have that crutch. Or you know, what I really found is that the vertical model really worked for a while. I don't think it works anymore, but it really worked for a while is that if you had a ton of something, people would ask you about that wine because they were like well they've it it was like a stamp of saying it must be good because he's got five vintages of it or ten vintages of it. it must be something to it i've never heard of it what is that whereas if you just put one of them on no one would ask you so i did all these things thinking that we weren't going to win though i never thought that the other side was going to not be there okay i always thought that i would be serving x y and z most of the time but people who got it would get this or people who 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 learned about it, would come back for it. Okay. And I, I didn't do it in a confrontational way, but I did do it in a quiet way and I labored for things. Well, one day those things got really, really popular. And what I saw was people had no problem saying, yeah, publicly I'm for this. And you know, cat had never done that. And I didn't do that. And I watched other people do it. And all of a sudden I realized, you know, it's all different now. To not take credit for things means other people are happy to do so. So, it's not about me. It's not about who gets the the acclaim. But I realized that if you wanted to sell these things, you had to do it in a different way, which was to promote. It, it was the difference between confession and profession. You know? It was the difference between Catholics and Protestants, right? Like, a guy... Comes in and he sits down and he says to you, "You seem to really like this." And you say, "You got me. You're right. I really do. You, you know, you should try it. It's. I really like it." And he says, "Well, maybe I will. You know that 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 seems to me to be a, a confession and a profession." I'm out on Twitter and I'm like, "Come get it. It's awesome." And that's part of the the Protestants had a sense of this was the right way, and I'm going to profess that. There was a big change for me to move from one to the other, and I'll. I'll be really frank about it. It was Joe Campanelli that really was the model for me saying, oh, okay, people can profess to like these things and be successful. Whereas I like the same things, but I had kept it quiet. I had, you know, kept the light behind the bush, that kind of thing.
1: And so an example of your professing is the amazing moment when you put together the orange wine tasting?
0: No, that was a confession and it was almost like Dada. Like I almost... It was a small, the original one was a small group of people. And I did it like you would do a cult Cabernet dinner, except that it wasn't cult Cabernet. And so at that time, I gave it the classical treatment, but for something that wasn't.
1: So for me, that was like, that was the joke, right? That and was be, the implied joke. It was confessional because it was a joke, even though it looked like a cult Cabernet dinner. I agree with you. And that's why I didn't get it. And also, those were my wines in a certain sense. I don't mean wines I made. I mean, that was already the world in which I was swimming in. So I didn't see it as Dada. I saw it as a kind of celebration. Thus, I mistook your confession for a profession. Well,
0: I mean, it. there was a level where I was trying to figure out what these things were. I also think that's kind of Dada, right? I was totally. trying to figure it yeah, out. Totally. Like, um, by the time we got to the, the second orange wine dinner, the clay amphora dinner, that was like, holy, that was very much professional, you know? So it struck a chord at that time, and nothing had ever taken off that way. I mean, it was like the kind of interest that that had where people were doing similar dinners that were modeled on it across the country in different areas was nothing like that ever occurred. I mean, it it was the right moment for it, and... Honestly, it was the right moment for the people who were there to do it. They had a bunch of these wines. They didn't know when they were ever going to drink them. I mean, and I'll give credit where credit is due. Italian wine merchants sold a lot of those wines to those people before it was a popular thing to do. And there was collectors in New York that had the wines in the cellar. And they didn't know who or when they were ever going to open that 97 Radicon. And what we were able to draw on that. It's like when you do a BYOB dinner on a, a, a theme that's been rapidly or regularly done. You know. Over the years, you get some degree of something. But when you do it on something that there's never been a a promoted BYOB thing, you get just incredible treasures. And at that Orange Wine Dinner, we got treasures that you would have trouble ever um, replicating today. I mean, we had 97, 2000, 2001, Radicon and Gravner next to each other. Um, a so you can really look at it. And those are key vintages for someone like Gravner where he switched to clay in 01. And you can really see across channels. But the thing, and I learned this, is that you can't actually treat those wines like Colt Cabernet because they are much more mentally strenuous and they require a lot more serving detail in terms of aeration and temperature. And there's a lot more you need to do. You need to really think of them as like Barolo and then you, you can succeed, but it, it's not actually a good idea. And kids should not try it at home to open up like 45 orange wine in in one evening. And people left early. I mean, it was, people were like, what the fuck? I I
1: can't do this anymore. I need out because the rhythms were different, you know? Levi, I feel like your last answer has tied so many things together. I want to make use of it as an endpoint for our discussion. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for all the work that you've done. Thanks, Abe. uh, Thank you very much. All Drink to
0: That is hosted and produced by myself, Levi Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett.